pastors here at Lighthouse Community Church, and I oversee our ministry here at Praxis, our single young adults ministry. Uh, just so that we're all on the same page, as a fellowship group, we are in the middle of a dating series. Uh, tonight we'll be in Ephesians 5, but uh, before we get to actually studying the passage, uh, just a quick recap. So uh, this is the third week. We've had two prior messages, which kind of laid out the foundation. Uh, if you need a refresher, those sermons are available on our website. You can download them and listen to them. But to bring us up to speed, we first examined a biblical understanding of singleness. How the Apostle Paul esteemed singleness as valid, preferable, a good gift to be stewarded. Contrary to popular opinion, dating and marriage are not ultimate. Only God is. Singleness, therefore, is about cultivating an undivided devotion to the Lord. In our second message, we then turned our attention to marriage. More than an outlet to express sexual desires or finding a companion for life, both of which marriage may fulfill, there is a greater purpose to the union that exists between husband and wife. Every earthly marriage is meant to capture and portray the heavenly marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. Marriage, then, is fundamentally not about felt needs being met or falling in love, but in fact putting the gospel on display. Though the dynamics, the dealings in life are different if you are single versus if you are married, the goal is the same, the glory of God. And when we have this starting point, this baseline, as well as this aim, this end in mind, it frames the conversation, the considerations for everything, including how we date. We define Christian dating as this. Christian dating is a mutual commitment between a Christian man and Christian woman to test their relationship for marriage. So if marriage is this living parable of the gospel, this window into Christ and the church, then it ought to inform, influence how we date. As we saw a couple weeks ago, dating is an understudy for marriage, which means marriage doesn't just reveal the bullseye for dating, it also provides the blueprints for how we might interact in a romantic relationship. What qualities we should be growing in as guys and as girls. What traits we should find attractive. Now certain characteristics are likely to be more pronounced, more becoming in men and others for women. And this isn't to say that we shouldn't be maturing across the board, but in God's sovereign wisdom, he has created two, two different genders with different dispositions, strengths, and impulses. We shouldn't find that offensive because differences can be a good thing. The wide spectrum of colors, foods, and cultures, they don't necessarily have to be in competition with each other. They can contribute to the beauty of a grander picture. 
a bigger vision of God's wisdom in his creation. So the same with gender differences. Our world has a hard time accepting this. In a society so obsessed with equality, where differences almost feel taboo, the response today is to whitewash everything into oblivion. But that is a tragedy. Imagine how bland life would be, how unexciting and ugly if we all looked and lived the same. But more than robbing us of joy, we would also forfeit all the blessings that God has purposed in these differences. You see, then, the solution is not in the extremes, whether we do away with differences or advocate solely for them. The proper place is embracing God's design, his prescriptions and limitations. And what we discover is God fashioned and formed males and females to be similar in some regards, but different in others. Now, can a male exhibit and excel in some feminine qualities? Can a woman be skilled in some masculine attributes? Of course, absolutely. But there is still a pattern, a norm to God's good and wise creation. And according to the Bible, there are characteristics that should distinguish and mark men. There are traits that are more common and obvious in women. And these differences shine bright in the context of marriage. After all, if we remember that marriage is a cosmic play of this brilliant union between Christ and his people, well then husbands and wives are handed different scripts cast in complementary roles. This is what theologians and scholars call complementarianism. But don't get tripped up by such a technical and long word. It's simply the position that while equal in dignity and worth, men and women, especially husbands and wives, have different but complementary roles. Just think of an orchestra. In an orchestra, the variety of instruments come together. They marry together to produce a magnificent symphony. And likewise, men and women, husbands and wives, they partner to reflect complementary truths because the gospel is just that rich, just that precious. There are many sides to this gem, many facets to behold. And as we will soon study, husbands are supposed to spotlight Jesus' faithful, humble, serving, loving relationship to his bride, the church. Men are charged to lead in such a fashion. Wives, on the other hand, are to spotlight the church's joyful, humble, submitting, loving relationship to her groom, Jesus Christ. Women are charged to submit in such a fashion. Together, husbands and wives showcase in high definition the glory of God in the gospel. Now, a few more things. One, we have to be very careful of reading our cultural assumptions back into the text. Because it is easy but erroneous to think a man or a husband is to discipline their children only. 
or a wife is to only busy herself with chores. That's a caricature. Because for the most part, the word is silent on the nuts and bolts. This might be a shocker to you, but in our household, sometimes I do the dishes. I even do the laundry. There are occasions when my wife is the one admonishing and correcting our kids. You see, the Bible provides the principles, but it doesn't spell out every single practice. So we need to be wary of reducing our God-given roles too simplistically, into menial tasks, instead of majoring on what the Bible majors on. The Bible focuses on the character and responsibilities of a godly husband and wife. Not necessarily the nitty-gritty expressions of this. Not to say that application isn't important, but we need wisdom to figure it out, what it looks like in day-to-day life. Second, as we study this passage, we're peering at roles specifically within a marriage. And as we have stated earlier in our series, dating is obviously not the same as marriage. Guys and girls in a romantic relationship shouldn't function exactly the same as husbands and wives. And yet, with that caveat, at the same time, if dating is to test the relationship towards marriage, we can draw a contour from marriage to be shaping our relationship towards. If marriage, then, is the mold, we have a pattern for what God desires, the kind of people we should be, the kind of people we should pursue. Which leads me to one final remark. As we examine the biblical portrait of a godly husband, I know right off the bat, at least half of you are ready to check out. Not everyone here is a dude. I know that. And on top of that, not everyone here is currently dating or even interested in it. I get that as well. But before you doze off and prepare yourself for a 40-minute nap, can I make an appeal, an earnest appeal? Our passage is still pertinent, relevant for everyone, dating or not, male or female. For the men, you might not be married today, but some of you want to be someday. And the temptation is to be so consumed with who you will date rather than who you will be. A a word of advice. Don't concern yourself so much with envisioning a perfect girlfriend or wife. Take all your daydreaming and invest it into developing your own character. The sooner you mature in the faith, the better ready you will be for dating and marriage. And listen, should you do neither, these verses are not wasted. Because listen, the main impetus behind all these exhortations we will look at is about being more like Jesus. So regardless of your marital status, you can use this passage as a guide to grow in godliness. It's why Paul consistently parallels the husband's role and responsibilities to Jesus Christ. And that's something we can all strive for, whether single or married. 
Now, for the ladies, this passage might appear far removed from you. Paul is addressing the men. But there is still much you can read. These verses give you a template for what to look for in any prospect. This passage will outline what you should be evaluating, what you should be prioritizing when it comes to a suitor, to a potential husband. More than the symmetry of his physical features, the net worth of his assets, whether his genes will make for intelligent and athletic children, the criteria for husband material can be boiled down to what Paul unfolds in Ephesians 5. Christ-like love. And if this is God's mandate for husbands, aspiring ones, then, sisters, you are involved in the process as well. You are enlisted to help. Even if you have no personal interest in dating, you can encourage these qualities in how you interact with your guy friends or how you support those you know who are dating, those who you know are married. All right, with that preface, let's get going. If you haven't already, I've given you ample time, hopefully by now, to turn to Ephesians 5. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 25 uh, all the way down to 30. But for the sake of context, it would be good for us to read beginning in verse 22. So follow along as I read God's word. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives shall submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Join with me in a quick word of prayer. And Father, we ask for your help now to illuminate our minds, to soften our hearts, to receive your word with humility. Lord, we come with a lot of baggage, our own understandings of what it looks like to be in relationship, what a marriage should consist of. But Lord, we pray that we'd submit all of this under the teaching and authority of your word. God, would you convict and guide us? Would you be stretching and challenge us to be more like Jesus? And that would be evident in every arena of life, from how we handle our vocation to being stewards of our times to how we interact with the opposite gender. We pray that what we would desire is obedience to you, to honor your son. We pray for your help in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, in our circles, you might be familiar with biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And as briefly touched upon in the intro, men have this high calling to lead, that God has wired us this way. And women have the high calling to submit. And it is not something that is weak and passive. Now, there are a lot of good resources. If you want to study this more, we can't go into depth right now. We'll expand a little bit next week when we look at verses 22 to 24. But I want to address the men right out the gate. We will be held accountable. We will answer to God in how we exercise the leadership he has entrusted to us. And what's interesting, even as we've come through this passage, is what Paul, the apostle, puts his finger upon. While leading is an aspect of the husband's responsibility, while leadership is implicit throughout the text, the apostle, he is much more explicit, much more loud about something else. Love. Love. Sure, leading is the context, but listen, love is the content. The stress is placed not on the authority husbands wield, but the distinct affection they are to have for their wives. Look again at verse 25. Paul does not beat around the bush. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice Paul doesn't kick off his address to the husbands with anything about communication skills, building muscle mass, or earning money. He isn't after all the bravado like the world. Paul condenses his charge to the husbands down to one verb, keeping it real simple for the men because we're smart like that, right? Not lead, but love. Love your wives. And this might seem obvious to us, but we need to realize how backwards this would have sounded to Paul's audience. I mean, for us today, husbands loving their wives, that's expected. That's the norm. What's shocking and revolutionary is calling wives to submit. But listen, back then, wives submitting to their husbands, that was the norm. That's what was expected. For the Romans, the Greeks, the Jews, what would have been shocking, what would have been revolutionary, was calling, commanding husbands to love their wives. You see, these ethnic groups differed on customs, values, and convictions. But what they saw eye to eye on was their view of women. Wives were viewed back then and treated as commodities, dispensable objects. One Greek statesman remarked how wives existed for the purpose of having biological children. Another philosopher commented how wives were to oversee and manage the household affairs so that the husband could be freed up to do whatever he wanted. Sure, some husbands indeed loved their wives, but they weren't obligated to. So when Paul opens up this section with a clarion call for husbands to love their wives, it would have been radical. It would have triggered his recipients, cutting against the grain of their time. Love, he says, is to mark the husband and his leadership. So men, married, dating, or none of the above, is this what distinguishes you from others? Not charisma, 
not intelligence, not whether you're savvy in the workplace, but love. That love above all is to be the most evident feature about you. That people would say to know you is to be loved, to be even loved by God. You want to marry one day, you want to date now, then ask yourself, are you sowing the right seeds? Do people feel loved when you're in charge, when you're around, when they interact with you? Is godly love the lasting impression you leave upon the people in your cubicle, the teammates on the court, the roommates you live with currently, the ministries you serve in, the girl you're dating? Look at how sweeping this command is. Paul doesn't provide an out for the husband. There's no excuse, except when she's mean or having a rough day. There's no terms and conditions, only after she's served you with dinner or when it's convenient. No, in fact, the only qualifiers for this love are what follow. And really, these are not exceptions, but what's to be exemplary about your love. To clarify all the misconceptions and misunderstandings we might have on love, Paul, Paul sets the record straight. He provides three specific ways husbands are to love their wives, which serve as an outline for us tonight. First, husbands are called to a sacrificial love. To a sacrificial love. Now, we live in an era where love is ambiguous and broad, right? Love can be applied to fluttering feelings to an entertaining TV show or your favorite spot to eat at. Like, I love Taco Bell. We live in L.A., a city obsessed with loving yourself, which is really just code for selfishness, like you-do-you attitude. But Paul has a separate love in mind. He elaborates as he continues in verse 25. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And already we can feel the weightiness, the gravity of this statement. The husband's love is to be held in equilibrium with Christ's love. You put them in the scales and they are to balance. And what aspect of love is Paul highlighting? It's emphatic. Keep reading. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul is talking about sacrificial love. We might envision some Hollywood version of this, right? We imagine ourselves rescuing the damsel in distress by jumping on a grenade or shielding our lover from the speeding car that's approaching too quickly. And that may very well be examples of sacrificial love. But it is not the everyday kind of love demanded from most of us. You know, there's a witty anecdote where one wife told her husband, I know you're willing to die for me. You told me that many times. But while you are waiting to die, could you just fill in some of the time helping me dry the dishes? And we get that. You know, sacrificing your life, that may be an intense and extraordinary moment. But more likely than not, it will be demonstrated in the ordinary, day-to-day -day moments. 
where we will have to be just as decisive, just as determined to sacrifice. Forget the hypothetical of taking a bullet. Stick to reality. Can you take out the trash? Will you lay down your free time, your to-do list, your hobbies, your food preferences, all for the sake of loving another? Look, you'll be in a better position to lay down your life if you develop that reflex in your life now. You're not going to choose her life over yours until you've had some practice, until you've learned to choose maybe Sephora over Foot Locker, Dancing with the Stars over Sports Center, chatting on the phone over video games. I'm sorry, I'm stereotyping, but hopefully you get the point. Your vow to sacrifice in the major thing is going to ring a little hollow unless you're willing to sacrifice in the million minute things. And whether you're willing to die in some extravagant way or in mundane errands is determined by one thing. Whether you're willing to deny yourself. Usually, you and I, we do not get to choose the conditions of our sacrifice. But you do get to decide how you respond when the opportunity to love and sacrifice arise. And no one denies this is tough stuff. But Paul grounds us in something firmer. He sets us upon the rock of Christ until our gaze of Jesus, his sacrifice, envelops everything. Think of Jesus' sacrifice. And naturally, we gravitate to the crucifixion. But it's not like he suddenly stepped up to the plate. It's not like his sacrifice on the cross caught us by surprise or came out of the blue. No, no, Jesus demonstrated this was the trajectory of his life every step of the way. He sacrificed his comforts, trading his heavenly home for a fallen world filled with sinners. He sacrificed his time, spending his long day to feed thousands who came to him only to have their bellies satisfied. He sacrificed his pride, wrapping a towel around his waist, holding dirty feet in hand to wash. Friends, is it surprising then when the love of Christ culminates and burns brightest at Calvary? There, the apex of his sacrifice comes at the cost of his life to ransom and redeem his bride, his people. Christian, Jesus literally died for you in a way none of us will be required to. Can you, men especially, die to a lesser degree for your friends, for your significant other, for your future bride? Be the biggest servant in your workplace, in your neighborhood, among your peers, here at church. So laying down your life like Christ becomes second nature to you. Men, we are to be the biggest servants, especially in our households. I'm not always good at this because my wife, Bear, is usually outdoing me. Sometimes I have to tell her to chill and stop so that I can obey the word. But I hope to be growing in this. Because I, as a husband in our marriage, have the honor of stepping into Jesus' shoes. 
You see, more than gaining the admiration, uh, admiration of my kids pleasing my wife or impressing the world, I want them all to see Christ, a Savior who loves his church enough to sacrifice for her. Second, husbands are called to a sanctifying love. So sacrificial love and now a sanctifying love. We resume in verse 26. That, so he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now here our, our gaze still is fixated upon Christ. He's the model. But Paul shifts ever so slightly and borrows from the wedding ritual of his time. Back then, in preparation for the wedding day, the soon-to-be wife would wash herself as a way to signify her consecration to her husband. It was symbolic for cleansing what was impure so she could be pure, committed to her beloved. And Paul uses this tradition as a metaphor for what Jesus does for his bride. He has delivered her from her sins so she may be pure, devoted, belonging wholeheartedly to him and him alone. And this is accomplished in and through the word. By receiving the good news of Jesus Christ, we are saved. But from that point forward, we begin our journey of this marriage to our Lord and Savior, of this new and holy life as a Christian. And Paul says the husband is to mimic that. The husband is to lead his wife down the aisle towards that goal. The word that, at the beginning of verse 26, is absolutely crucial. It is reinforcing the connection, revealing the purpose that Jesus sacrifices to sanctify. You see, some of us have no problem sacrificing, serving, loving. But it's for all the wrong reasons. We're doing it to appease others and keep them from getting angry. We're doing it to earn brownie points or so we can brag about how we're the better Christian. But Paul differentiates the Christian husband's intention from the rest. The purpose of sacrificing as a husband is to sanctify his wife, to be a catalyst for her Christ-likeness. You peek behind the curtains and all marriages are messy. Because all marriages involve two sinners. Two sinners in proximity and you cannot cover up sin. It will be exposed. But the issue is not its presence. Everyone sins. The issue is how we handle our sin. And Paul keys in on the unique effect husbands are to have on their wives. They are meant to be instruments of sanctification. When conflict arises, sin rears its ugly head. Husbands can either launch a barrage of insults and perpetuate the problem, or be an instrument of gospel hope, a conduit of God's truth. You see, sanctifying love has both a positive and a negative dimension to it. There are two sides to this one coin. Paul mentions 
without spot, wrinkle, and blemish. And also he mentions that she might be holy. There should be a guarding against sin and an encouragement towards Christ. Husbands should be correctly, correcting gently and cultivating a love for Jesus. Which begs the question, men, how are we doing in this? We may not be husbands yet, but what kind of effect do we, you have on others? A secular one or a sanctifying one? Let me just give you some areas to consider for your spheres of influence, especially if you're a guy that's dating. You can expand upon this, but how about materialism? Will you show her how to cherish Christ by how you budget and spend? Or will she be enticed to love money more than her God? How about purity? Are you courageous enough to say no to certain movies? To take initiative to set physical boundaries because you take seriously your responsibility to present her holy and blameless? How about serving? Are you affirming her giftings, enabling her to exercise them and minister others? It could be something as simple as attending second service with her so that she can serve during first. Here's one more. Reconciliation. After a heated argument, are you the first? Are you leading by asking for forgiveness? I know how it works. You know, you're steaming, replaying all the ways in which your girlfriend, your significant other has wronged or hurt you. And she may very well be culpable, but as men, serving and sanctifying leaders, take the initiative. Jesus is the only one innocent of any wrongdoing, but that didn't prevent him from seeking sinners. Are you modeling Christ by seeking reconciliation, even if that means you admit your shortcomings with no hidden agenda to strong-arm her into apologizing? I just gave you four categories, four fields to examine. And there are a ton more. Outside of devotion to God, there's no greater priority for the Christian husband. And in the future, should you get married one day, you might very well uproot your family, move town, but there is no escaping this. You may change occupations, but this will always be your job, men. You may be able to provide a luxurious, comfortable life, but will you provide her the husband she needs, the husband God requires? Let me shoot straight. Guys, how do you measure up? Is your girlfriend, for those of you who are dating, more like Jesus Christ because she is with you, or is she more like Jesus Christ in spite of you? What can be said of your friendships, too? For those of you who aren't dating, you run through the same questions. Do you have a sanctifying love towards others? Lastly, husbands are called to a self-love. Sacrificial love, sanctifying love, and self-love. Now, this might seem a little strange, weird, but this is not the selfish love our culture espouses, 
but an enveloping perspective that considers the good of another. That's what I mean by self-love. And we pick up on this in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as, so here's the comparison, their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but cherishes, sorry, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Skip down to verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. We'll stop there. Paul is striking a nerve. We immediately understand what he's referring to. No one has to tell or train or teach us to take care of numero uno, right? We have no problem loving ourselves. No problem taking care of our own body. Self-love is innate. It's intrinsic to us. I mean, for most of you, this is your current season of life as a single young adult. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're tired, you sleep. When you're cold, you put on a jacket. As a lone ranger, you operate by the principle of your needs, your wants. There's no other variable in the equation. But here's the startling thing. Paul says it's to be the same in marriage with one minor adjustment. Husbands are to adopt the same outlook, but now including their wives. Think of a pair of glasses. They're bifocals, two separate lenses joined together to provide one united view. And that is how Paul is aligning the husband's eyes. Yes, you are a party of two, but you are to have one perspective. When you look at your wife, you should, in a sense, only see you. This is really just one flesh union rehashed for husbands. Why? Because that's the way Christ loved the church. Imagine if Jesus treated us with more concern for himself than his bride. He would peer down the corridors of time and shudder at what's ahead. Mockery from the crowd, persecution from his uh, opponents, abandonment by his own disciples, the pain of the cross. Jesus would shrug his shoulders and say, no thank you. What's in it for him? He would have stopped cold in but his eyes pierced through to his beloved he saw his bride and love for her compels him forward over and over again in the gospels we see how Jesus loves others to the same degree that he would love himself he touches and heals the leper he welcomes pesky children he weeps with those broken by sin. He feels for the sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sympathizes, so he saves. He loves others as if he loves self. And Paul offers a very tangible example in verse 29. He has us examine our self-love in how we care for our own physical flesh. Not with hatred, but as the text tells us, nourishing, cherishing. This is a language of intimacy. It's used for a mother caring for her children or the warmth given to a lover. 
This is how you and I attend to our own body. You know, some of you uh, might pamper your skin with the best lotion. You know, for this baby soft skin, only shea butter and shower oil from L'Occitane. Or when it comes to food, right? You eat what's healthy. Or maybe you just eat what's tasty, right? Like the other day I was at Costco and they had just put out pumpkin pies. So I bought one. I bought one and I brought it home and when my wife asked me why, I told her, oh, because the kids would want to eat it. But truth be told, it's because I wanted to eat it. And I did. Why? Because I love myself. <laughs> and you love yourself as well. You're going to nourish your body. You see, when it comes to your own flesh, you want what's best. And you and I know how we like to be treated. And Paul establishes that husbands are to have the same priority, same concern for their wives. And if this is supposed to be the dominating perspective in marriage, are you working on this? Are you developing this propensity now in how you look to the interests of others? Are you a student of your friend, your parents, your coworkers, your significant other? Are you studying, guys, how she thrives and flourishes as well as what crushes her spirit? Women are not all built the same way, so they will be built up in different ways. A girl may be more skeptical and pessimistic, so you'll need to be reaffirming patient. She may respond better to a kind act of service or a considerate word. She may need a prayer partner or a verse or both. Are you learning the best way to even speak and rebuke so the message is not only clear, but well-received? Look, there's no denying the fact that sometimes we will have to do and say hard things. And it's amplified in a romantic relationship. But listen, we don't have to do and say them harshly. A husband is to study his wife so he can not only tell her he cares, but treat her with care. There should be a consistency with our claims of love and our conduct of love. We shouldn't be sending mixed messages where we pledge our love but betray it with sarcastic remarks or insensitive gestures. Husbands are to do better than articulate love. They are also to act in love with tenderness, with thought. You know, a woman may be as strong as a battleship, but men, we are to treat her as delicately as a flower. Not to patronize her, but to prize her. Sacrificial love, sanctifying love, self-love. This is to characterize the husband's relationship toward his wife. And we should be able to pick up on similar traits, similar vibes in our relationships now, especially dating ones. Now, I know some of you, throughout this sermon and up to this point, you may feel gypped because you still got questions. You're confused about the pragmatics for dating, the implications. You know, who initiates DTRing? Does this mean that guys should always drive or pick up the check? And girls are secretly saying, yes. 
But what, other questions too, like what does this loving leadership look like if the guy is more of an introvert and the girl is more of an extrovert? And I'll be the first to admit, I'm not entirely sure, at least for every scenario, every relationship. And I'm not sure if I or anyone else can say definitively because the situation, the situation may vary from person to person. We have to take it case by case. But what we have at our disposal is God's truth, his word, principles to steer us. Look, the applications are endless. But Paul has given us larger categories to filter our thoughts, our questions, our problems and issues through. Because if it doesn't promote a sacrificial, sanctifying, Christ-like love, we probably need to pump the brakes and reevaluate. We need to consult the pages of Scripture and heed the advice of godly counsel. And this is something we can wrestle with together. One really easy way to do this is to continue the conversation. That's why we have small groups. We can talk about it even after service. You know, I may not have all the answers, but I'd welcome dialoguing more about this. Another opportunity for this is by submitting and texting your questions to our Q&A hotline number, uh, which is not on the screen, but we will have it to you. Or you can respond to our um, weekly practice emails. Uh, we'll be having a panel of people from various walks of life to chime in from their own insights, their own experiences, their own study of God's scripture on how they have tried to apply passages like this in their relationships, uh, in their progression from singleness to dating to marriage, or if they're still single today. And it would really help us serve you better if you gave us leeway time by submitting your questions in advance so we can begin thinking about this. Again, all of this is just the tip of the iceberg. We haven't teased out all the ramifications for friendships and relationships. It will be a work in progress. Yet my hope is it is one we can work through as a fellowship. As we continue to study God's word, crucial passages like Ephesians 5, and we continue to plead for his grace and look to Christ. Let's pray.